0: This is The Guardian.
1: Today, why you need to understand the cultural revolution to understand China now. Finding your
2: perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier.
1: There's a particular phrase that sometimes comes up in speeches by China's president, Xi Jinping. He talks about the threat of what he calls historical nihilism.
3: He's warned about it as being a sort of existential peril for the party, on a par with Western democracy, for example. He sees the need to control the story as being really central to what the party does and how it remains in power. He has put history right at the centre of his mission.
1: Tanya Brannigan is a journalist with The Guardian. She used to be based in China. And she says this fixation on the past isn't always appreciated about Xi.
3: I think history is more important to Xi Jinping than to any leader, really, since Mao.
1: And there's one era of China's history that looms over Xi more than any other. It's an event that transformed his own life the Cultural Revolution. A decade of unbelievable turmoil in China, when all the hierarchies that held the country together were turned on their heads.
3: Nobody is untouched by this, and it's felt at the most intimate level. We see children turning upon parents, husbands turning upon wives. It's an extremely brutal, volatile time of incredible insecurity, basically. Nobody ever knows where they stand. We see... Two million people die, uh, killed or hounded to their deaths, and tens of millions of lives really torn apart.
1: Tanya argues that understanding China without coming to grips with the Cultural Revolution is like trying to understand Britain without its empire or the US without its civil war. And as she writes in her new book, though it happened decades ago, the fight for how it's remembered is still playing out in China every day. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, the long shadow of China's cultural revolution. Tanya Branigan, you were The Guardian's Beijing correspondent from 2008 until 2015, and you write that in that time, no matter the stories you were doing, there was always a force that went unspoken, but was clearly present all the time. Tell me about how you came to feel that way.
3: It was really through a chance conversation I had with an analyst and a political observer I knew. We went for lunch, we were talking about economics and politics as usual, and then over coffee he just started talking about a trip that he and his wife had made, and they'd gone to try and find the body of his father-in-law, who had been taken captive by Red Guards in the very early stages of the Cultural Revolution in 1966. He had made a passing remark, and really that was all it took in the Cultural Revolution. Very small things could get you into very, very serious trouble, and his treatment was such that when he did manage to escape his captors, he killed himself. And so his daughter, Carol, who's now in her 50s, does not remember her father at all. And in fact, she said to me, she couldn't imagine what it would mean to have that absence be filled, to have a father. And really, I think that's how I realised that we weren't talking here about history. Uh, It was something within touching distance, really, of us. After that, I began to realise it really was everywhere in the stories I was covering. You'd be talking to a film director, and it would become clear that their whole sort of creative history was really formed by the sort of the 10-year blank in which foreign culture had really been just removed or erased from China. Tycoons would say to you, you know, if you want to know where my drive started, it was really in the Cultural Revolution. So I grew to understand that you really can't understand China today unless you have some grasp of that era, because it is still shaping the economics, the society, really the soul of China to this day.
1: Tanya, to try to understand this event, why it happened and how it continues to shape China today, what's the context that we need to know? Chairman Mao Zedong took power in China in 1949. He established a communist system with himself at the very centre. How do we get from that moment to the Cultural Revolution?
3: So in the late 1950s, he launched the Great Leap Forward which was this utterly hubristic attempt to transform China's economy, to collectivise agriculture, uh, to create this kind of industrial behemoth. And it went disastrously wrong. Tens of millions of people died in the famine that resulted. So Mao clearly wanted to reassert his political supremacy after a period in which he'd lost a a great deal of authority and, and credibility even. But he also wants to transform China, to make people be better communists. He feels that the party has been seduced by power. He goes outside the party and he turns to the masses and to young people. I mean, in many cases, we're talking about kids, people in their early teens, and he uses them to try and destroy political opposition and to effect this complete sort of ideological remaking of China.
1: And so what did that actually look like for the people who lived through it?
3: Well, in the early stages, it was all about the Red Guards, who were really these young political vigilantes. And they were told to challenge authority, not Mao's authority, obviously, but uh, everybody below that, and to, to destroy old culture and customs to create this new way of life. Our esteemed and most beloved great leader and teacher, Chairman Mao, We Red Guards make this solemn pledge to you. We are your most loyal Red Guards, and you are forever our commander. And so in the early days, you see Red Guards, first of all, criticising teachers in denunciation sessions and then very quickly physically abusing them, killing them. We see cultural relics being destroyed, foreign clothing, foreign books, all of these sort of things being dragged out in the street and set fire to. We see the country's culture really under attack. And then we begin to see fractures within the Red Guard groups, people fighting in the streets with grenades and tanks. I mean, it's more like civil war than any sort of political turmoil in the sense that we might understand it. It is 10 years of incredible volatility in which the political currents are constantly shifting. Victims become perpetrators. People are executed for supposed political sins, uh, for being a member of the wrong kind of family, and so forth. And so it remains a very brutal time, right up to Mao's death in 1976.
1: Tanya, you've been speaking to people who lived through this anarchy and chaos and violence. What kinds of stories did they tell you?
3: It's just really hard to begin to imagine the experiences and the trauma they have been through. One of the reasons I ended up writing this book was meeting a man called Zhang Hongbing, who was a Red Guard and ended up at the age of 17 actually denouncing his own mother. He had seen his family go through a a very difficult time. Uh, His elder sister, who was a very keen red guard, went up to Beijing for one of these mass rallies with Chairman Mao. And meningitis was spreading very quickly because of this mass travel. She was one of the ones who caught it and died a few days later. He saw his father persecuted. He then saw his mother persecuted because of her family's supposed links. And so... By the time the family reaches this crisis point, they've already been through these immensely distressing and turbulent experiences. Because of that, because she's just reached a breaking point, his mother criticizes Chairman Mao while they're at home one night and, and says, really, that he is the source of the trouble that China has experienced. She carried on attacking Mao, even trying to sort of pull down a poster of him. His father, in fact, said to his mother, you will be buried. His mother said, well, it's Mao Zedong who should be shot, not me. And Zhang Hongbing and his father then went and reported her. The officials arrived. One of them kicked out his mother's legs from under her so that she fell. They bound her up with rope. He heard her shoulder crack as they were sort of hauling her to her feet and he said she walked out with her head held high as if she didn't feel any shame and... His mother was shot. Not much later, it was a public execution. John and his father didn't go, but an acquaintance later said to them that she'd looked as though she was scanning the crowd, looking for faces she knew.
1: How did he live with that? How did he go through every day knowing that what he had done had led to her death? He
3: talked to me about going through extremely difficult times, through periods of Great Depression in his life. It clearly had haunted him. How how could it not? He said that in that moment when she denounced Chairman Mao, he was so thoroughly indoctrinated, so imbued with the ideology, with the zealotry of that time, that this was a monster. This was not my mother. And he quoted to me this song that uh, he had learnt at the time, which so many children of of that era will remember, which said, you know, mother and father are close, but Chairman Mao is closer. I mean, there's this sense that your devotion to politics and your devotion to Mao in particular was the thing that should be supreme. But then in around 2012 when I met him, uh, Zhang Hongbing became concerned that his mother's grave was going to be really destroyed by all the development going on around it. There was this sort of tiny patch of land with a stone and all around it there were walls going up. It was completely hemmed in. And so he launched this campaign to try and preserve it. I think to show a loyalty to her in death that he had not been able to show to her in life. He wanted to show that he was still dedicated to her memory.
1: Tanya, you said these absolutely shocking events are not history in China, they're life, because the survivors are still alive And the ones who aren't may have passed the trauma down to their children. But among those survivors is actually Xi Jinping himself. What was his experience of the Cultural Revolution?
3: It was pretty brutal. His father was a revered revolutionary, uh, but like many of those who suffered in the Cultural Revolution, being a party veteran and loyalist with an impeccable record, you know, didn't keep you safe. So... He was persecuted. Uh, in fact, she's older sister killed herself. We believe because of the punishment and hounding her family had endured over several years. Uh, we're told that at one stage, Xi Jinping's mother reportedly even denounced she at a sort of public rally because she had to. I mean, people often in those days had very little choice. And then she was sent down to the countryside uh, along with 17 million teenagers and spent around seven years living there in pretty bleak, really, rural poverty.
2: Every child, every teenager is a Red Guard, but their anarchy is over. The Red Guards are part of the system now. Their energies are channelled to the bidding of the state. At 16, they're sent out to work and learn humility for five long years in the
1: countryside. And that happened to 17 million young people. That is a mind-blowing number. Why were they sent away? What was the point?
3: The early stages of the Cultural Revolution had been so turbulent and violent that by around sort of late 68 even Mao had decided really that things needed to be reined in again. and So teenagers were sent down to the countryside primarily really as a way of keeping them out of trouble, trying to stabilise the situation. And more importantly, from his point of view, they would be educated by the peasants to be better communists, that they would learn what life was really about. But they found out pretty quickly how desperate and how miserable circumstances were. To go to the countryside was really not just to go hundreds of miles from your home, but also to go back a century or so. You were going to places with no running water, with no electricity, might not even be able to get there by road. It was extremely basic. And the teenagers who were sent down there, she included, really struggled to make a living and survive.
1: Do we know how that experience shaped she? I mean, beyond the official narrative, what it really did to him?
3: He went from a pretty comfortable childhood, at least in terms of sort of material circumstances in Beijing, to suddenly getting battered and bruised from all the sort of the physical hard grind, unblocking pipes and having manure in your face. So we're talking about seven very grim years and it's hard to imagine that that didn't shape him, that that didn't toughen him in some regard, uh, that that didn't make him think much more about who you trust and the nature of power and all of those things. And this is a narrative that she has really celebrated, this idea that this is where he became a real man and then a real leader. He learned to live this tough life. So when the state media talk about it, it's a narrative of overcoming obstacles, it's a narrative of strength, it's a narrative of a humble leader. And critically, it's a narrative in which the story of him having this very tough time in the countryside but triumphing through it is totally divorced from the story of why he went there there is no discussion of the fact that this resulted from the sort of the turmoil of the early stages of the cultural revolution
0: Tanya it
1: sounds like from what you're saying after she assumed power understanding the way the cultural revolution had actually shaped him became really difficult because the story itself became sanitized there was suddenly an official version is that true of the way that the broader history of the cultural revolution is is treated in china
3: absolutely it's really so little discussed officially so there was a verdict uh, put out in the aftermath of the cultural revolution which said that it was a catastrophe And that was initially quite helpful, really, for the party, because it justified the turn away from Maoism to the market. It said, look, remember, this is how bad things were. This is why we've had to take this kind of drastic change in course following Mao's death. But it wasn't something that the authorities ever wanted people to dwell upon. It's not about saying to people, let's remember this so we make sure it never happens again. It's about saying, we've drawn that line, now we can move on. And so in the years that followed... The authorities were always careful about really mentioning it at all. If you go, for example, to the exhibitions the Road to Rejuvenation at the National Museum, there's this tiny room which says some setbacks and problems on the way to Communism and within that, there's this one picture on the wall that shows the aftermath of the Cultural Revolution. Uh, So not even sort of the events themselves. It's very tightly policed, very tightly controlled and much more so in recent years.
1: Tanya, we started this conversation by talking about Xi's embrace of, of this phrase, historical nihilism. Where does that come from? And when did he start using it?
3: So the phrase historical nihilism is not unique to Xi, but it's certainly a phrase that hadn't been much used uh, before he took power. And then within months of him becoming leader, a document began circulating within the party which appears to have been based upon speeches that he had given to party officials, that was leaked. It's a document that talks about the threats to the party, and many of them are things that we might recognise, such as Western democracy. But one of the ones that was extremely striking was this idea of historical nihilism, anything that doesn't conform to the party's established, accepted narrative that's been laid out. And that's become especially the case uh, for two reasons. The first is the brutal crushing of the pro democracy protests in 1989, which really sort of demolished any remaining sense of the party serving the people that had been left after the Cultural Revolution.
2: After hours of
0: shooting and facing a line of troops, the crowd is still here. They're shouting, Stop the killing and down with the government.
3: But then also in more recent years, of course, the double-digit growth that we saw is long gone. We're seeing a much more difficult and troubling economic picture ahead for China. And so the historical narrative has become more central than ever to the story that the party is telling. Looking back on the glorious journey, the party has travelled over 100
1: years of struggle and looking ahead
3: to the bright prospects of the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. He sees the need to control the story as being really central to what the party does and how it remains in power. And we've even got to the stage where there's a sort of hotline where people can phone up and report acts of historical nihilism.
1: And Why do you think he has this fear of history or a kind of anxiety to make sure that the history that people know is controlled, is the sanctioned version?
3: Traditionally, the explanation for the way the Communist Party controls the past is everything that happened in that era was connected to Mao himself. And Mao is obviously such a revered figure. There's really, I think, this feeling that to criticise what Mao did, to be more honest about the disasters of that era, would really undercut the party's roots, its whole sort of sense of legitimacy. For Xi Jinping, There is this vision of historic inevitability that everything in the past, going back thousands of years, in fact, has led to the Communist Party taking over China, building a better China, bringing it to prosperity and bringing it back into greatness in the world. And so all of the difficulties and all of the zigzags and abrupt ruptures in history really have to be sort of smoothed out into this seamless narrative. Mm. For me, it even goes beyond that. Because once you grant people the right to judge what happened in the past and the way that leaders acted in the past, you're really kind of granting them the right to judge what you're doing now and how you're leading the country. So
1: what impact has that approach to China's history had on the people you've been interviewing and others like them who survived the Cultural Revolution to their memories and their ability to remember what happened?
3: I think it's important to say that it's not just official repression that has reduced or suppressed discussion of the cultural revolution within China. One of the big factors has in fact been the personal trauma, that many people simply have not wanted to address this, even within families. But it's certainly clear that people who had previously felt able to speak out about the cultural revolution no longer feel able to do so. And when I arrived in China there seemed to be a certain space people had carved out through civil society and through the internet as tightly controlled as it was there still was a bit more space for discussion So we started to see this period in which people were really coming forward to talk about the Cultural Revolution again and the things that they had done to apologise to take accountability
1: I'm 70 now Now is the Regal generation 70, I hope that they reflect, they regret, they re examine what should we prevent this kind of human tragedy happen again.
3: We also saw the creation of a museum of the Cultural Revolution. A retired official who himself nearly died in the Cultural Revolution then really made it his personal mission to set up this museum in Shantou, in the south of China. But as it started to pick up visitors, they were told to take down the signposts and local media were told not to write about it anymore. And so by the time I visited there, which would have been probably around 2014, it was a pretty deserted spot. I mean, it's a a park right outside the city and then you climb right up this hill to the top. But I'd never actually got to see it because by the time I got up to the top, Pretty obviously, undercover cops had telephoned ahead of me. And so I arrived at the top of the peak and there was suddenly a sign saying, well, we're doing maintenance. And I was then followed back down the mountainside by people who were fairly clearly taking pictures of me as I went.
1: And does the museum still exist today?
3: No. In 2016, which is the year that was the 50th anniversary of the Cultural Revolution, uh, somebody sent me some pictures of the site the statues of victims of the cultural revolution were suddenly put in these kind of cages of scaffolding and sort of covered up and these rather somber walls dedicated to memorializing the cultural revolution were covered in these red propaganda posters that were sort of proclaiming xi's vision of a sort of chinese dream what's happened since is that That sphere has become even more policed, even more controlled. We've seen archives shut down, for example. People can't get access to them anymore. We've seen many people come under pressure, many people be silenced, even that social media has become so much more restrictive. So the party has boasted uh, about removing all these posts about history, millions of them. There's this sense that the past is something that has to be more carefully patrolled than ever.
1: Coming up, what she learned from the Cultural Revolution and how it shapes the China he's building.
2: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier.
0: and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash today in focus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash today in focus.
1: What's striking is that after the Cultural Revolution, China's leaders, the ones who survived, changed the way the country was run. They, they started to govern by consensus. They imposed unofficial term limits. They effectively rebuilt the system to make sure no leader could ever have the kind of power that Mao had ever again. And that system held for decades until this current president, none other than Xi Jinping. What do you make of that irony?
3: It's extraordinary, isn't it? Because, of course, Xi's own father was one of those elders who was restored to authority and spent so long, as you said, trying to create some sort of collectivisation of power, creating a much more stable period of politics in China. And she himself seems to have taken a totally different message from the turmoil of the time, really, which is not that you have to avoid a strongman leader, but that you need to have the right person at the top and they have to have a very tight grip on power. Mm -hmm. In a sense, I mean, this is a sort of lesson that the party wanted the Chinese public to take away from the Cultural Revolution, which was that's what happens when people are able to take to the streets and take power into their own hands. And that idea that it was really a choice between the Communist Party and turmoil has been extremely potent. It's something that for many people, sort of still rings true today.
1: Tanya, if you had to advise a policymaker in the UK or anyone trying to engage with Xi Jinping and the country that he rules, what would you want them to know about the Cultural Revolution and the shadow that it still casts today?
3: I think I would want them to know that you have a country that has been profoundly traumatised by many things. The Cultural Revolution, in many ways, was the culmination of a a series of terrible traumas that struck China, including, for example, the Opium War and obviously the very brutal Japanese occupation. So you have a nation that's had an extremely turbulent and difficult and distressing modern history. And I think I would also want them to know that trust is in short supply, that it's somewhere that saw such... Intimate betrayals really, within workplaces, within families, that there is a great deal of suspicion still. But I do also think that there are broader lessons for us in the Cultural Revolution in terms of how we conduct our own politics. One of the things that I found very troubling uh, as I was writing the book were the parallels that I could see. If you look at a figure like Donald Trump, you have somebody who in many ways seems extremely Maoist in his love of disruption, more so than she, you could argue, and who uses division and exploits the power of the masses by fostering hatred, by fostering this sense of cruelty, and tries to overturn institutions that provide some safeguards against that sort of strongman rule.
1: It also struck me that... Over the period that you've been working on the book, this idea of history being something that is fought over and that there's a battle over how we remember the past is not something that's confined to China either. It's something we in Western countries are living with every day.
3: Absolutely. Now, obviously, there were really important fundamental differences. Uh, we live in a country where you can have you can have a historian like David Orsoga going on the state broadcaster and talking about Britain's less-than-glorious history in many regards, about the fact that we weren't just the people who ended the slave trade, as we often like to portray ourselves, but we're a nation that was greatly enriched, immensely enriched by slavery. That's something that's utterly impossible to imagine happening within China. And yet the kind of battles, as you say, the sort of culture wars being fought over history, uh, the way that those culture wars are being deliberately inflamed and exploited as a political tool, I think, is disturbing. It is concerning. And one hopes that people can find a way of discussing history, because history should be a discussion, it should be a debate, but doing so in good faith, and doing so respectfully, and with interest and openness to people's points of view.
1: Tanya, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Tanya Branigan, whose new book, Red Memory, is available now. And before we go, don't forget to subscribe to our new podcast series, Cotton Capital, with episodes released every Monday. Episode two follows Guardian journalist Maya Wolf-Robinson reporting from Jamaica, where she's looking for a former sugar plantation called Success. It was once co-owned by Guardian funder Sir George Phillips. It's part of a wider series examining the Guardian's links to slavery. And what those links might mean for The Guardian today. Subscribe by searching for Cotton Capital, wherever you listen to podcasts. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Rose Delarabiti and Eli Block, with help from Matt Murphy. Sound design was by Solomon King. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. And we'll be back tomorrow.
0: This is The Guardian.